Before we start, a quick note. The content in this episode should not be considered to be medical advice, and no physician-patient relationship is implied. So I have uh, on my desk here a collection of objects that I use both to remind myself of certain things and also for people to play with when they come and visit me. And it's kind of about the pace of technological change. On an early summer afternoon, Dr. Jonathan Chernoff, chief scientific officer at Fox Chase, is seated in his office, set in the middle of a long line of laboratories. In front of him is a collection of strange objects. So one of the, the oldest by far objects is a stone hand axe, a small stone, piece of stone with a sharp edge that was dug up in Morocco. And it's probably 100,000 years old, but the point of it is this object was used, objects like it, virtually unchanged for several hundred thousand years. It was so perfect that no one needed to change it for you know, millennia. And then in the middle, or just off to the side on my, on my other desk, I have a microscope, which uh, in this case is my father's microscope, but it's kind of illustrative of microscopes at that time. And they had slow evolution, but you know anybody from 16 or 1700 could use my dad's microscope just fine. Now in the modern age, now in 2019, they're basically computers uh, driving a light source. It's completely different now. It's, 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 it's more computer than it is um, mechanical object by, by a long shot. Um, but then on, on the, the furthest end of the spectrum are things like this little gene chip I have on my desk. So this thing is used to analyze arrays of RNA. Um, it's got maybe 100,000 points on it. It's in microscopic. You couldn't see all the, the little nodes on this um, chip. But its half-life as a useful object was maybe a year until it got replaced by a more dense chip in the same way that computer chips are always getting smaller and more dense. And um, so in this business, if I don't understand the workings of that gene chip or those modern microscopes, I'm going to be out of business myself. So I have to keep on my toes at all time, and so does everybody else. And that's a good thing. I'm not complaining about it. It actually makes life more interesting. Every day, our waiting rooms, laboratories, and clinics fill up with people searching for something to take care of others, to find the next big breakthrough, or maybe just to feel like themselves again. This is Connected by Cancer, the podcast of Fox Chase Cancer Center that's all about that search. I'm Andrew Becker, and each episode we explore these connections together. Today we'll be looking at three different stages of a life in cancer research, from a newly minted PhD working in someone else's lab, to a mid-career researcher leading the way against pancreatic cancer, to the keeper of a legacy that changed our understanding of the disease. This is a pipetter that you can use to pipette liquids into multiple wells simultaneously. So I've got this plate that Let's start in the lab of Fox Chase Deputy Scientific Director Margie Clapper, who specializes in colon and lung cancer. This is where we find Dr. Alyssa Lystra, who is wrapping up the second year of her postdoctoral fellowship, a training period that can last anywhere from two to five years. Move it into the wells, expel it into the wells. And when I am finished, I would then just get rid of these tips. So the work that I do is trying to understand how and why cancer arises in the colon and trying to determine what changes in the colon uh, occur before tumors form so that we can detect them earlier, so that we can uh, develop new interventions to stop the formation of colon tumors. 
I've been studying how very minute changes within the colon of mice changes their risk of getting tumors. And it's great to work with mice because we can control so much more of their environment than we can with people. So we know what you eat makes a difference. We know your genetics make a difference. We know where you go during the day can make a difference. Uh, and you can't just sit down 100 people and say, all right, you're all going to eat the same thing. You're all going to be genetically identical. And we're going to figure out why some of you get cancer and some of you don't. So with mice, I can do that. I can have a hundred mice and I can say, you're all going to be the same, but some of you are going to get cancer and some won't. And then I can ask why. Well, certainly from the start of graduate school till now, there have been huge changes within the cancer biology field as a whole and also within um, studying colon cancer specifically. Those changes are largely in the tools that we have available. So a lot of people have heard of CRISPR now. It's a way that we can more easily edit the genes that we're working with in order to understand what they do. But also we're beginning to realize just how important the immune system is and the microbes within your body are for uh, increasing or decreasing your risk of getting cancer and also for treating those cancers. So the fields of immunology and microbiology are becoming massively important to my research. And that wasn't true five, ten years ago. Well, we don't think about our colons very often, but it is a very important organ. It's where most of the liquid absorption for your body happens. So proper function of the colon is important to avoid dehydration. For people who have diseases in the colon, life becomes very difficult. You become malnourished and dehydrated. If you have to have your colon removed because of cancer or um, a really bad inflammatory disease, your life is uh, changed for the rest of your life. You have to have a colostomy bag on your stomach where, and you have to change it frequently and there can be accidents. It's embarrassing and it's difficult and people don't like to talk about it. The colon is also home to billions, if not trillions, of microbes, most of which are good for you. They help digest things and uh, absorb things. Uh, but when things go awry, say you take some antibiotics and maybe you kill off some of those healthy microbes, it becomes easier for ones that are bad for you to colonize your gut and cause disease. And it is becoming increasingly clear that the microbes in our gut make a huge contribution, not just to your risk of colon cancer, but to uh, your overall health, to your immune system, to your risk of various other cancers. And that field's still very much in its infancy. So I am very excited to learn about how the microbiome uh, interacts with the rest of your body. Uh, and hopefully there are huge advances in that in the next you know, couple decades. Personally, I just hope that I can make enough of a difference as a mentor and a scientist that uh, several new scientists are born into the field. So the reason that breast cancer has made so many leaps in the last 20, 30 years is we've gotten better at admitting that breast cancer is a thing that exists and that needs to be studied and people are willing to talk about it and celebrities will say, I did this thing in order to reduce my risk of getting breast cancer. But other cancers like colon cancer are more taboo to talk about because it is an icky organ. We don't want to talk about our bowel movements. We don't want to say, I saw blood in my stool. What does that mean? So I think that um, 
just people getting more comfortable talking about these things will be important. Getting better at detecting some of these more difficult cancers will be important, and I hope both of those things happen over the next 20 to 30 years. If Dr. Leistra dreams of one day charting her own course in research, at Fox Chase, she's surrounded by excellent role models of what mid-career success looks like, including this man. My name is Igor Asaturov. I'm a medical oncologist. I am also a physician scientist, so I run a research laboratory with two postdoctoral fellows, a technician and a student. My interest in science and in the clinic is to understand the biology and find new treatment options for patients with pancreatic cancer. As a teen in the former Soviet Union, Dr. Igor Astaturov reinforced his conversational English by listening to pirate radio broadcasts on a shortwave radio. Now a medical oncologist and physician at Fox Chase, Dr. Astaturov's research lab is leading the quest to decipher a different sort of signal. In, in, in the pancreatic cancer field, besides that majority of tumors are very difficult to treat and the options are limited, there is a, the worst of the worst subset, which is called basal uh, pancreatic adenocarcinoma. So that particular subtype likes to have low cholesterol levels, and that particular subtype is uh, upregulating or enhancing TGF-beta pathway signaling. So we're trying to understand how these uh, metabolic and signaling systems interact with each other. Science is a difficult field because uh, on good days when we have maybe 30-50% success rate, uh, that'll be fantastic. Oftentimes you have to work on failures and technical issues and solve uh, sometimes very challenging experimental problems because we deal with live systems, we deal with live cells or live animals, trying to find solutions for uh, problems almost like in the darkness. Pancreatic cancer epitomizes uh, the difficulty that we face in dealing with any um, solid tumor or any cancer in general for two reasons. It is one of the smartest cancers. So George Sledge, maybe five or six years ago, provided this very intuitive classification of tumors. He called them either stupid or smart. So the stupid cancers happen to have mutations or mechanisms uh, that for which we have drugs. When it comes to pancreatic cancer, only maybe 10% are the stupid ones. The vast majority of pancreatic cancers are smart, and they have very few vulnerabilities on which we can impinge in order to suppress their growth. The key here is to find these uh, vulnerabilities in other, that, other cancers that are seemingly um, impervious at this point. I think we're going to flip this page and we'll get there. It just uh, requires a better understanding of their biology, how they interact, not only how they live by themselves, but also how they interact with the surroundings, with the microenvironment, these stromal cells, and how they evade immune recognition. So th these are the fundamental questions that are still not fully answered, but there are some uh, early basic science inroads that will ultimately lead to development of clinical breakthrough therapies. Treating patients while running a lab can be a lot to balance, but Dr. Asaturov says it's good for both his patients and his research. I think without this interaction with real patients and taking care of real illnesses and real problems of cancer sufferers, I would not be as motivated or as insightful about what we do in the lab. And these two parts of my professional life, they feed it into each other. Science can require a steely, objective point of view. But Dr. Astaturov's work is rooted in a painful personal loss. 
I didn't think that I would be doing pancreatic cancer from the very beginning of my uh, research career, but just happened that uh, I had to um, because my wife was diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer. She passed away in 2013, and since she was diagnosed, I really thought that I could come up with some uh, treatment option for Elena. Her cancer had a rather unusual combination of mutations in KRS and P53 and another gene that was amplified uh, named MYC, which made her cancer uh, super aggressive. Um, and we uh, basically started the whole new program, deriving herb tumor tissue, putting it in mice, and getting cell lines out, and getting uh, what, what's called avatar model uh, of uh, her tumor. And uh, unfortunately, we could not finish the the task before while she was still with us. But finally, it was published three years after uh, she, she passed away. And we found uh, actually an interesting option for patients with MYC amplified tumors. They are very susceptible to activity of a drug called uh, triptolite. And now this compound, also known as minolite, is now being tested in in clinical trials. So we. Uh, uh, we're late to help her, but I think this knowledge may arm other physicians and patients to fight this lethal disease. We'll be right back. Cancer advice from someone who knows. I'm Tula Aras, breast cancer survivor. With cancer, where you go can be the most important decision in your life. If you do not get the best medical care, Nothing else matters. This is why I tell people, go to Fox Chase. Where you start matters. Fox Chase Cancer Center, 888-FOX-CHASE. This is Connected by Cancer. I'm Andrew Becker. If researchers like Alyssa and Igor are currently working long, hard hours to make a difference and make a career, Alice Hungerford has experienced what it's like when all that work leads to a true breakthrough. I will tell David's story until my last breath. Mrs. Hungerford is a retired lab technician and the widow of Dr. David Hungerford. David was an incredible person, brilliant. Other scientists of the world had said he was probably the most brilliant mind of his generation. He was an incredible guy, really was. <laughs> he knew everything about everything. And people would ask him, "Come, just come into our lab. In those days, you could sit in the lab and eat. We had this table, and I so wish I had this table now, but it's probably radioactive. It was this great soapstone top table because all the lab benches were made out of soapstone. It was easy to mill. It was heavy. It, it was non-reactive. And all labs had soapstone countertops. Now they're all who knows what they are. Anyhow, we had this great table in the lab and we sat and we all had coffee and David smoked. You know, we all sat and smoked and ate in the lab. I mean, nowadays, oh my God, you can't do that. Her husband, who died in 1993, spent more than 30 years at Fox Chase. And along with Dr. Peter Knoll from the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. David Hungerford made the first landmark discovery at Fox Chase, the Philadelphia chromosome. How the Philadelphia chromosome got its name is, is an interesting story. Uh, originally, it was the Philadelphia and a supernumeral one chromosome. So in those days... So we're talking the late 50s, early 60s. Most of the science came from Europe, England, France. That was where the hotbed of discoveries was coming from, particularly, at least in genetics, Edinburgh. The paper was sent to the Edinburgh group for review. Now, they had already 
looked at all the known leukemias of the time using the techniques that they used, not David Peets and, and Paul Moorhead's technique, but their techniques, which were fine, and what most people were using at the time. And they didn't see anything. So they wrote back and they read the paper. They did the technique the way David Peep and Moorhead had suggested doing the technique with the culture and the slides. And sure enough, they saw it too. Well, they quick wrote a paper off to nature, which was the mouthpiece over there, where science is our mouthpiece. David was a man of incredible language skills. He knew his words. He chose his words very carefully. When you don't talk a lot, you choose your words carefully. And they wrote a letter and said that they were very happy to have read their preliminary paper on their findings from the Edinburgh group. But uh, perhaps they saw their abstract in science, which had been published in September of 1960, which noted that they had seen in some cases of acute granulocytic leukemia this minute chromosome. And a further study is underway, which is what more or less the abstract says. Well, the Edinburgh group quickly pulled their paper, did not ever get published, and they proclaimed when Hungerford and Knoll's paper, Knoll and Hungerford's paper, was published, that it should now be called the Philadelphia superscript one chromosome, because the thought was that there would be an Edinburgh two and a Chicago three and a Atlanta four, and every city, would, wherever the discovery is made, would have their little claim to fame by having the chromosome named after them with a supernumeral. Well, that was fine, except that it stood as the only chromosome abnormality associated with a specific cancer for 25 years. So that didn't happen. At about 10 years, they, everybody kept looking because like, they thought for sure they were going to find something. A, they didn't have David's eyes. They didn't have his determination. And, you know, you can look for so long and then nothing. So for 10 years, nothing really happened. So that was 61 to say 71. And that's about when banding started to come in in the early 70s. And from then on, it was a watershed. Uh, people had sort of lost interest in human chromosomes. But when Bandy came in, it opened up a whole new chapter, and people were now doing the banding of these chromosomes, and they could see things that were not obvious before when you just had a singly stained chromosome. The Philadelphia chromosome, because it was the first chromosome associated with a specific thing, cancer, it was actually the first chromosomal abnormality that is really a genetic change. And the basis with the uh, banding techniques, they could finally see where the breaks occurred and the refusion of the two chromosomes. Many people misquote Noel and Hungerford's paper, and they say that Noel and Hungerford said that it was a deletion of the 22, and it was not. David, as I said, was very, very precise in his language, and it was very careful in the paper. They noted that a loss of genetic material 
of that amount would be lethal, and those were their words, lethal for the cell, and the cell would not be viable. So the Philadelphia chromosome, in essence, created a fusion gene, which in turn made people develop the chronic granulocytic leukemia. And it was, therefore, the Philadelphia chromosome became the first instance of targeted gene therapy with the development of Gleevec. And Gleevec was cleared for use by the FDA in 2001, which was 40 years to the year from the discovery that David made under the microscope. If you love her storytelling as much as we do, look for an extended version of The Hungerford Story as a bonus episode soon. The Philadelphia chromosome, which they discovered in 1959, established the first clear association between a genetic mutation and a form of cancer. It took decades for the scientific community to catch up. When that finally happened about 20 years ago, the field of targeted cancer therapies was born. Our research episode could have made an entire series on its own. Fox Chase is home to the discovery of the hepatitis B virus and a vaccine to prevent it, along with critical breakthroughs in identifying and characterizing tumor suppression, cellular signaling, reprogramming tumor cells, genetic cancer risks, advances in radiation therapy, and many others. Our researchers have earned two Nobel Prizes, the Kyoto Prize, the Lasker Prize, and more Medals of Honor and Lifetime Achievement Awards than I have time to name. This small campus in an urban neighborhood far from downtown Philadelphia has truly changed the cancer world. Connected by Cancer is the podcast of Fox Chase Cancer Center. It's produced and edited by Joel Patterson and me with help from Jonathan Pfeffer. Thanks this episode to Alyssa Lystra, Igor Astaturov, Alice Hungerford, and Jonathan Chernoff for sharing their stories with us. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions, who helped with some of the music in this episode, and to Rocket Summer Productions. Subscribe to Connected by Cancer in Apple Podcasts, foxchase.org, or wherever you listen. And remember, the content of this episode should not be considered to be medical advice, and no physician-patient relationship is implied. I'm Andrew Becker. Let's stay connected. <laughs>